So recently, I had a very interesting experience happen to me. I found myself being watched and followed all throughout my house. When I was in the bathroom, I would look over and hear giggles and a phone following me. And when I was in my office, same thing. A phone would be taking videos of me and all throughout my house. And it was very strange. It felt like I was in a reality TV show. I didn't understand what all the laughter and the video camera was for. Well, later on, uh, the secret came out. Uh, My children presented me with a video of a compilation of all those capturings, and it was put to the theme of the Pokemon theme song. Does anyone remember the Pokemon theme song? Actually, I pulled it up on my phone because I desperately did not want to sing it to you all. Here's what the Pokemon theme song says. I want to be the very best like no one ever was. To catch them is my true test. To train them is my cause. And so the video that was presented of me, which James Carter was also a co-conspirator with, was it changed that song into I want to be the very best like no one ever was. To play pickleball was my true test and some other kind of changes to the song, but it was to be the greatest pickleball player ever. And uh, it was kind of convicting to see. It was funny. I actually enjoyed the video, but it was kind of convicting because is that really what we're here to do? To train Pokemon or to be the best pickleball player in the world? Is that really why God has put us here? I think not. And I hope that as we go through Jude chapter 1, verses 17 to 24, we could find what our true cause is, the real reason we're down here, not what we often become distracted by, our hobbies, our talents, our pleasures. So please turn to Jude chapter 1, and we will be looking at verses 17 through 24. And Lord willing, we will finish this book tonight and be in First John the next time. So, Jude chapter 1, verses 17 to 24. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause the visions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forevermore. Amen. So some of this will be by way of recap, but verse 17 kind of tells us the bad news. And the bad news is, is that the apostles of our Lord had predicted that at the last times there will be these scoffers who follow their own ungodly passions. 
And it's these people who will be causing divisions and problems in the church. They're worldly people. They are devoid of the spirit. It's these people that really the whole book of Jude needed to be written in the first place. If we didn't have these scoffers, if we didn't have these divisive worldly people devoid of the spirit, Jude would have written a completely different epistle. And as you recall, that's what he said. He said, I, I write to you because I wanted to talk about our common salvation. I wanted to rejoice about how good God is and how wonderful the place that we will go and how he's done this amazing work in our lives. But I couldn't write that letter. Instead, in the words of verse 3, I had to write the letter to tell you, to exhort you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, some of us might be fighters, might be aggressive people that just like to beat other people up or just like to get into the battle. But I suspect most of us really don't want to fight. In fact, the idea of having to fight and contend can be somewhat depressing. In reality, we don't want to deal with scoffers. We'd rather have rest and to be at peace. But that peace is not to be had in its fullness here. But now we must wait until the kingdom arrives to receive that full Sabbath rest. Today is a day of battle. Through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so we must fight. We should not glorize this. These are people that are in the church that we have to fight. And it's not pretty. And usually this results in church discipline, which can get very, very messy. So that's the bad news, is that we're going to have to deal with imposters, divisive people, people who cause divisions within the church. Now, verses 20 through, uh, excuse me, verses 20 through 22 tell us what we are to do while we sojourn in this wicked world with opponents on the outside of the church and with opponents that are within the church. We are not to complain, we're not to grumble, we're not to throw up our hands and say it's all hopeless, but rather we are to do what we see in verse 20. Let's look at that. Verse 20 says, But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your, most, in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That leads to eternal life. Now, last time we looked at the detail, verses 20 through 21, so I will just cover these verses in passing. But as we journey through this life, we are to build ourselves up with our most holy faith. The reason it's called most holy is because through faith we are united to Christ and through, united, through union with Christ we are sanctified. So that's why it's most holy. But we are to build ourselves up. That is that we are to grow up in every way of salvation. That when we become saved, we become babes in Christ, but we're not expected to stay there. We're expected to grow and develop and to mature in Christ. We're to grow in sanctification. And the way that we grow in sanctification is to grow in faith because one necessarily follows the other. The more you believe, the more that your life will correspond to that belief. Or Jesus said, he who is forgiven much loves much. Or if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or if you love him more, you will all the more keep his commandments. And so what we must do is cry out like the man in Mark, Mark chapter 9, verse 24. He says, I believe... Help my unbelief. That's what we must do to grow in our sanctification. And the reality is, like all things in life, we're either growing stronger or we're growing weaker. And you can think about our physical lives. For a very short period of time, when you're a child, you just continue to develop. You continue to get better and faster and stronger. And you just go all the way up. You're just 
If you kept going that way, you'd be 100 feet tall. You just keep, every year, people saying, wow, you've gotten bigger, you've gotten stronger, you've gotten faster, you're getting more gross and fine motor skills. And then something happens when you turn about 21. And you just feel like, things start tapering off, and they start heading the other direction. And that's life. We're either growing stronger or we're growing weaker. And as each decade goes by, the more and more we come to see that we actually are in these bodies of death, that we're rapidly deteriorating. No matter how much we exercise, no matter how much we diet, the best we could do is simply slow down the process. From my uh, observation out there, no diet can guarantee that you will survive forever. In fact, what's amazing is if you read the Psalms, it says that the, the days of our lives are 70 by way of strength 80. Now look out there, and that's still the way it is. We have about 70 or 80 years on this life at best, and then we are gone. But this reality that we're either growing stronger or growing weaker isn't just true about our physical lives, but it's also true about our spiritual lives. We're either growing closer to the Lord or we're growing farther away. And so we must continue to grow in that way and build ourselves up by our most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, in order to do the command found in verse 21 of our passage, which is to keep yourselves in the love of God. We want to make sure that we're heading in the spiritually right direction, not by simply planting our flag and trying to hold on for dear life, but rather trying to gain ahead, trying to grow, trying to take ground, trying to build ourselves up in our faith. Now let me just stop here and just ask a question. How are you doing in this category? If you look at your life over the last year, two years, three years, have you been growing closer to the Lord or have you been growing further away? I mean, practically, are you giving more time to the Lord now than you were in the past? What about your talent? What about your treasure? Is it a tangible way if someone were to observe you and really to see, are you closer to the Lord or are you farther away? Are you moving in the right direction or are you moving in the wrong direction? And if you can honestly say to yourself, I don't think I am growing closer to the Lord. I think better days are days gone by. Consider the words of Jesus found in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. He says, but this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. God does not call us to have better days gone by. But today is the day that we live in. And today is the day that we should be drawing closer to the Lord. We should be growing up. We should be developing. We should be maturing in the faith and not simply holding on to the glory days of the past. But continue to reach out to our Lord and Jesus Christ, and being developed in him. So the last part of verse uh, 21 tells us the way that we should continue on our path and our journey down the Christian life. Not only are we to keep ourselves in the love of God, not only are we to build ourselves up in our most holy faith by praying in the Holy Spirit, but we're also, in the, ver- in the words of verse 21, we are to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And this is a helpful reminder for us because we are never to forget that this is not our kingdom. 
This is not our home. I'm not to be the greatest pickleball player ever. And even if I was, what would that matter? I'm not waiting to become a champion in that respect. I'm waiting for our great and glorious kingdom to be revealed to us. This is not our kingdom, but rather when Jesus Christ comes back, he will bring in the kingdom. He will bring in the kingdom of God. Remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 14. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where, you, where I am, you may be also. And so this is our great hope. This is what we are to be doing. We are to be waiting for our Lord Jesus Christ. That is our grand hope. That is our grand destiny. And as we were in the pizza with the pastor earlier on today, I was expressing that it's just challenging for me to see myself slowly fall apart and kind of depressing But you have to look past all of that. You have to look past 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 and look to eternity. And then I get grand hope. That's what we're waiting for. We're not waiting to age and to die. We're waiting to be glorified and to remain with him forever. We're waiting for Jesus Christ to come back and to give us eternal life. But verse 22 of our passage tells us other things that we're to do. So we're to build ourselves up. We're to pray in the Holy Spirit. We're to keep ourselves in the love of God, and we're to wait for the mercy that is to be revealed at the coming of Jesus Christ. But verse 22 tells us some other things we're to do. Namely, we're to have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire, and to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now here we're given several commands in this passage. We're to have mercy, we're to save, we're to fear, and we are to hate. I'll say that again. We are to have mercy, to save, to fear, and to hate. So let's take them one at a time. We are to have mercy on those who doubt. Now, the first thing we must recognize is doubting is a sin. But it's a sin that we are all prone to. So let me first try to establish that doubting is, in fact, a sin. Well, here's how I'll do it. Doubt is the opposite of faith. And this can be discovered by considering a few passages where Jesus, or the Bible, contrasts faith with doubt. So Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 14, 31, this is the passage where Peter is walking on water and then starts to sink. Jesus says to Peter, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? Now notice in this passage that the relationship between little faith and doubting. And notice the context of this passage is a reproof. He's reproving him of his little faith or of his doubts. Or consider another passage, Matthew 21, 21. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will say, and he goes on. But notice the opposite of faith is to doubt. So doubting is the lack of faith. And since the Bible commands us to believe, to refuse to believe the promises of God is to disobey and hence to sin. I hope you all see that. The Bible commands you to believe, and you say, no, I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to trust the promises of God. Then we are being disobedient and, in fact, sinning. Now, with that being said, it is, in fact, a sin to doubt, but doubting is a sin that we are all tempted to fall into. Peter doubted when he walked on water. John the Baptist, the greatest man ever to live, doubted when he was in prison. Some of the disciples, it's amazing, you go into Matthew 24, some of the disciples doubted the resurrection of Jesus as they physically saw him. So doubting is certainly something that the best of us 
are tempted to fall into. Something that we all struggle against and we all will struggle against until we get to glory. And if you've not struggled with the sin of doubt yet, just wait. I remember when I was young in the faith or younger in the faith and uh, somebody asked me if I doubted. I said, no. I no more doubt the existence of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ than I doubt that I love my wife. Well, you just wait. Hold on. There will be seasons of doubt. Lord willing, we won't stay there. But we all will go through seasons of doubt. The devil will attack us in this area in our lives, especially as things go bad, things struggle, as we struggle with sin, doubt will creep in. But the question is, how do we respond to doubt? How do we respond to when we're tempted to doubt or when we, in fact, do doubt? Do we see doubt as being open-minded? Do we see it as a friend or do we see doubt as a great enemy that will separate us from Christ? And the reason doubt will separate us from Christ is because how are you united to Christ? Through faith. So since doubting is the opposite of faith, doubting seeks to separate you from your only chance of salvation. Remember the words of Peter when all of the, apost- all of the disciples left Jesus in John chapter 6. And Jesus looks almost in words of pain. He looks over to the disciples and to Peter and says, will you leave as well? What did Peter say? How can we depart? But you have the words of eternal life. Doubting seeks to separate you from the one who has words of eternal life. Doubting is the voice of Satan asking you, hath God said? And so doubting is a great enemy, and doubt, doubting must be fled from. And that's why James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Don't flirt with doubting. Don't play with doubting. Resist it. Submit to God and flee from it. Run from doubt and run to God. And this is how we are to deal with doubting in our own lives, but how are we to deal with doubting in others? Well, the first thing is, when other people doubt, we're not to have a self-righteous attitude of your doubter, and I've never possibly ever struggled with that ever before, or possibly ever could. No, we are to not look down on people who doubt as if we're better than them, but we are to empathize with them, knowing we too are tempted to doubt, or we too will be tempted to doubt. We're also to have mercy on those who doubt. We're not to bring down a hammer. Say you're basically an apostate already. Are you an atheist? No, of course not. Not to bring the hammer down on these people, but rather would to be a shoulder to cry on. Or at the very least, a person to talk to. Don't be Job's friends who just came down on him. Be like Job's friend who just sat there and was silent and just listened to Job and to heard his tears. We should be a safe place for people to share their struggles and fears with us. And we have a beautiful picture of how Jesus dealt with doubt, and specifically the doubt of John the Baptist found in Matthew chapter 11. But for the sake of time, I'll just summarize the passage. So here's John the Baptist. And he's the herald of the Messiah, the Mashiach, the one who's going to come in and destroy all of the enemies and, and bring in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And what happens to John? He finds himself in a prison, alone, sad, and miserable. And he's already proclaimed Jesus, but Jesus doesn't seem to be getting him out. And you can just imagine John is praying, God, get me out of here. I don't, this must be some kind of mistake. What's going on? So eventually... John the Baptist seems to begin a low place in his ministry, in his life, and he sends his disciples, and they come to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? What's going on? This is totally not my expectations. Why am I in this prison? And Jesus responds to them, the disciples that are going back to John. He says this, 
Go and tell John what you hear and you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk and are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What does he do? He points them to more evidence that Jesus really is who John believes he is. He strengthens his faith. And that's what you're to do. You're to listen and point them back to Christ. But it's even more remarkable because as they are going away, Jesus continues to talk about John. Now, what, what, what might we say about John? What's wrong with this guy? I thought he was the greatest person ever. We might criticize him, gossip about him, make fun of him. But what does Jesus do? That's what Jesus says. He says, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then, did, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus speaks well of John. In fact, this is the greatest statement about John found in the whole Bible in the context of John's doubt. This is what it looks like to be tender and merciful for those who doubt. We are to give people medicine in their doubt. We're not to beat them down, but we're to comfort them. We're to point them to things that will strengthen their faith and continue to think highly in regard to these people. So we are to do likewise. If someone's doubting, listen, strengthen them, point them to Christ. Don't speak bad about them. Recognize that you too are prone to doubting. Have mercy on those who doubt. Be a safe place for people who doubt. People who doubt should be able to come to you and you point them back to Christ. All right, so what else are we to do? Verse 23 says, we're to save others by snatching them out of the fire. This verse describes the additional work that we should be doing as we sojourn in this wilderness land. We are to save others from hell. Now, of course, we ultimately cannot save anybody, but it does say save others. And so what's going on here is that we can be used as instruments of God in order for God to save these people through us. In other words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And how can they hear unless one is sent? God could just send angels, but he sends you. He gave you the great commission, not the angels. And we are to bring out this great commission by presenting the gospel to others so that we can be used by God to be a part of their salvation. But God, of course, gets all of the glory. So let me ask you this. How are you doing in this category? How much of a burden are the lost to you? How much does it bother you that there are people headed to a Christless, hopeless reality apart from God and that will spend their entire days in the lake of fire? Does that burden you? Does that break you? Is that concerning to you at all? And what are you doing, if you're emotionally disturbed by this reality, what are you doing to counteract this horrible fate? Do you give out tracts? Do you evangelize in any way, under any circumstances? It doesn't have to be one way, any way. I like to tell people, are you doing anything that God could possibly bless to save somebody? It doesn't have to be my way, just anything. If not, why? Why are you not doing that? That's what we're supposed to do. Look at the passage. What are we supposed to do on this wilderness journey? Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Nobody will ever get saved by your looks and your stares and your silence. You got to do something. You got to say something. You got to do something that can be used by God. So we should be out there 
sharing the gospel under some circumstances, doing something. What about our money? How are we investing in missionaries? How are we investing to spread the gospel? Even if you can't do it, can you help somebody else to do it? Can you pray for them? Can you just do anything to be used by God to be a part of this great work of snatching men out of the fire? Because this is what we are called to do. Now, the other category of things that we are to do can be found in the latter part of verse 23. It says, To others we are to show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, this is very difficult, and there's all kinds of different um, commentary about uh, exactly how this other group is related to the two other groups. But I tend to think what's going on there is that this is just a literary device to describe our mission in verse 23 of saving those uh, by snatching them out of the fire. As we save those by snatching them out of the fire, we are to make sure that we are to be fearful of what could happen to us as we go in there. I'll put it like this. Jesus told us to be fishers of men. But as we fish for men, we have to be real, real careful lest we find ourselves falling out of the boat and out there in the water with the fishes. So evangelism is tricky business. Jesus was able to dine with sinners, but not to sin. But so often we dine with sinners by sinning with them. So as you go out to evangelize, you go out to share the gospel with others, be very, very careful lest their sin contaminates you. And, and look at the strong language. As you to do this, showing mercy, as you're merciful to their condition that they're heading to hell, you're also to hate even the garment-stained by the flesh. You'd have a holy hatred for their sin. And from passages like this, we get the principle that we are to love the sinner and yet hate the sin. That's biblical, right? We are to love them, which causes us to have mercy on them, but we're also to see that their sin is very wicked, very vile. And here's the, here's the real clincher, very addictive. See, here's the thing. We have the flesh. And if you're honest with yourself, the world is attractive to us. We can so easily be enticed by the world. And a very legitimate strategy to avoid the world is just that, to avoid it, right? To stay away from it, to keep it far away. But if you keep it too far away, you won't be able to evangelize it. There's this tricky balance that we have to be able to make raids and get close enough to people to touch them, but at the same time, stay far enough away from them so that they don't contaminate us. And that's what's being described in this passage. That yes, we need to get close enough to these people, but at the same time, never stop hating their sin and always see their sin as a great contagion. This would be like an alcoholic. Imagine if you're a former alcoholic, and for most former alcoholics, they have found it wise to stay away from bars, right? Most former alcoholics who are sober don't become bartenders or things like that. It's just a very bad idea. But occasionally, maybe duty would call you to actually have to go into the bar. But you're going to go into the bar with a sobriety, and watchfulness, and prayerfulness. And so too, we, as we have tried to evangelize the lost world, should, should go out there with sobriety and with prayer. Or in the words of 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Or our Lord Jesus Christ says in Matthew 26, 41, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Remember that. Your flesh is weak, that these are difficult, that you could be contaminated. 
hate the sin. Continue to go and pray and be watchful as you go out there. And I can just give you a personal testimony about this. I remember when I was going into D.C. every single day, and I would go in through the train. And the things that you'll see on the train and the subway in D.C. are quite horrible, quite terrible. And uh, the only way I was able to make it through that experience without destroying myself is to watch and pray. It was not my own power. It's the power of God. We have to pray that God would help us and keep us from the contagions of the world. So that's what we must do as we go out and evangelize and seek out to grab people, watch and pray. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sin. Flee from materialism. Whatever it is, flee from those things, but still get close enough to reach out to these people. All right, in a few minutes we have left in this sermon, let's look at the doxology found in verse 24 and 25. Here's what it says. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. Now this is a a very long sentence and it's difficult to know exactly what's going on here. We just kind of hear and say, yeah, hallelujah. Right? But what exactly is this sentence saying and what exactly is going on here? Well, the doxology is centered around God the Father. It is him to whom all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority should be given. And this is very similar to Colossians 1.16. Interesting enough, that's about Christ. This is where the doctrine of the Trinity comes in. But here's what uh, Colossians 1.16 says. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And the key point is through and for. We ask our children, the catechism question, why did God create all things? What is the purpose? And the answer, of course, is for his own glory. Right? And that's what this passage is saying. All glory belongs to the Father. Glory does not belong to you. does not belong to your country, or your tribe, or anything else. It belongs to the Father. But that glory that belongs to the Father in eternity past, in the present, and eternity future is mediated through Jesus Christ our Lord. But it's not just the glory, but it's also the majesty and the dominion. Christ is Lord over all of time. God is Lord over all of reality, from past, present, and future. Now, what's really quite amazing, though, is I want you to think about this for a second. This text is saying that all glory goes to the Father, all majesty goes to the Father, all dominion goes to the Father, in what time frame? In eternity past, in the present, and in the future. Now, in the present, that makes sense. Right? And in the future, that makes sense. But it's also saying, in the past, all glory, majesty, and dominion has come to the Father through Jesus Christ. Now, that, of course, doesn't make sense if Christ is a created being, right? How could all glory to the Father come through Jesus Christ if Jesus Christ came to being at some point in time? Well, thank God that did not happen. That's what we see in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But what's really amazing here is it's just a completely radical statement, which is saying that all glory has come to God the Father through Jesus Christ from all of eternity. This is the uh, mind-boggling doctrine of the Trinity that we find is also in Colossians 1.15, that Christ is the image of the invisible God, or Hebrews Hebrews 1.3, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. All glory to the Father has always come through the Son for all of eternity. All dominion of the Father, 
has always been mediated through the Son for all of eternity. It's just truly amazing. He is the Word. He is the expression of God. But what's even more amazing is this expression, this Word, this radiance as a person. And it's always existed with the Father and the Son have always existed together along with the Spirit. The last thing we see in this doxology is that this great God and his Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. This God is powerful. This God will not be defeated by the devil. This God will not be defeated by your son. He is able to keep us from stumbling. He is able to present you blameless, spotless, wrapped up in the righteousness of his son. And I love that little last part. We'll see his glory with great joy. Now, here's a question. What does great joy refer to? Is it our joy? Is it the Father's joy? Is it the angel's joy? I think it's everybody's joy. I think it's just going to be full of joy and majesty as we get there. We'll sing hallelujah, and the Son will sing over us. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's going to be a glorious day. We just got to get there. We just got to hold on. Keep the faith. Keep yourself in the love of God. Rest in him. He is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before his presence with great joy. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for your goodness, your power, your mercy, your love. We thank you that you are so good to us, Lord, that you give us commands. You tell us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but you also are the one who work in us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. Lord, you, uh, you are deserving of all glory, of all power, of all dominion. Help us to serve you and to worship you. Lord, help us not to serve pickleball or anything else whatever that might be in my brothers' and sisters' lives. But let us serve you as our reasonable service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.